Hi everyone, welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. An earthquake fault line that runs directly beneath San Diego is more dangerous than we previously thought. We'll talk to science reporter Gary Robbins about that. Then, it's been almost a year since the coronavirus pandemic upended life as we know it. We'll hear how San Diegans are reflecting on the difficult year we've endured during the pandemic. First, the news. Governor Gavin Newsom set an April 1st reopening deadline for schools if they want to get their share of the $6.6 billion reopening funds. $2 billion of the fund is for school safety measures such as COVID testing and ventilation upgrades. The other $4.6 billion is for schools to address learning loss. That means they can use the money to pay for things like summer school, an extended school year, tutoring, or mental health counseling. Under the deal that was announced Monday, schools must reopen for at least transitional kindergarten through second grade, as well as all high-need students by the end of March to qualify. Schools that do not meet those standards will lose 1% of their incentive funding for each school day they're closed past March 31st. After seven years of discussion and debate, a San Diego Community Choice Energy program has rolled out its first phase. The program will provide an alternative to San Diego Gas and Electric when it comes to purchasing sources of power. San Diego Community Power consists of San Diego, Chula Vista, La Mesa, Encinitas, and Imperial Beach. It began serving municipal accounts across the five cities Monday in places like school districts, fire stations, and libraries. The program plans to add another 72,000 commercial and industrial customers in June and almost 700,000 residential customers next January. If that happens, San Diego Community Power will be the second largest CCA in California. Entertainer Andra Day, who grew up singing in Chula Vista, made history at the Golden Globes on Sunday night when she became the second black actress to ever win in the motion picture drama category. The first was Whoopi Goldberg for The Color Purple in 1986. Day won for portraying iconic jazz singer Billie Holiday in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Day was nominated alongside Viola Davis, Vanessa Kirby, Frances McDormand, and Carey Mulligan. She was also nominated for Best Original Song. If you look at a map of San Diego, the Rose Canyon Earthquake Fault basically runs down Interstate 5 from La Jolla to downtown San Diego. It's a worrisome sight to be sure, and scientists are now saying the fault is larger and more active than we once thought. In response, the California Geological Survey is creating zones to evaluate where developers can build, and it has other implications too. Gary Robbins is our science and technology reporter with the story. Gary Robbins, um, the, the Rose Canyon earthquake fault is bigger and more active than scientists previously thought. How did they discover this? You know, it's, a, it's ironic how they discovered it. It was through a lot of uh, land development in the county. There's so many big residential complexes and commercial buildings and public buildings that are being built. And so a lot of times they're digging into the earth to see what, to build, what they're building on top. And as they're doing that geologic work, they learn about, what, they learn about the geologic record. Um, many of these uh, buildings are being placed on the um, on the path of the fault. The path comes ashore um, in La Jolla Cove, then it goes on the other side of uh, Mount Soledad, the east side, and comes through Old Town, right down through the heart of the downtown, and then through the bay and out uh, over uh, Coronado. So it really cuts through the heart. Um, and they were just able to see many things. And they use other kinds of technologies like radar and sonar 
to send signals through the Earth to see if they bounce off of the fault and whether they can determine whether it has been moving. So they determined in recent years that a fault that was once thought not to be active at all is moving uh, considerably and faster than they thought even a few years ago. For example, there, um, in 1862, there was a 6.0 earthquake on that fault uh, near Old Town. That's a pretty big earthquake. They think that something like that could happen. Um, they also think that it's possible to have something much larger, like a 6.9 earthquake on that fault. Now that probably only occurs roughly every 700 to 800 years, but the earlier studies indicated that it only happened every 1,000 to 1,500 years. So as they learn the topography and the geology of the uh, city's faults uh, better, they come to understand that there's more of a threat there than they once knew. Yeah, in your story, you said scientists simulated a 6.9 uh, earthquake here in San Diego. What did that look like and what was the damage like? The damage was catastrophic. Um, according to that scenario done by engineers here, an earthquake of that size could um, damage 100,000 buildings. It could displace 36,000 people. It could, it could cause part of um, San Diego Bay to sink a foot. It could shut down the Coronado Bridge for an indefinite period of time. It could break water lines and gas lines throughout the city, essentially abandoning people. You know, they wouldn't be able to cook or get the water they but water they needed. Um, it could topple some um, some older buildings. It could damage a lot of hospitals or some hospitals here. So, while they don't think something like that is imminent, um, they wanted to know what was possible for planning purposes and. The scenario is a nightmare. Are there any projections about how big the biggest earthquake here could be? Well, it depends on what breaks where. So the Rose Canyon Fault is, a th is the southernmost part of a larger fault called the Newport Inglewood. The Newport Inglewood starts up like near Beverly Hills, comes down through part of Los Angeles County, cuts into Orange County, goes offshore, comes back ashore where we are. If that whole thing broke, it probably would cause an earthquake somewhere in the 7.5 range. There are certain scenarios say, that say it could actually be 7.6. So we tend to think of the big one as something of that order or larger that occurs on the San Andreas. But if that entire fault system ever really let go, it would be the most catastrophic geolog geologic um, event in the history of Southern California um, during periods of time when there've been a lot of people here. So it would be worse probably than uh, Northridge um, and some of the other quakes, the San Fernando Valley quake, which occurred 50 years ago this year. It would just be horrifying. Now, now that, and that system is harder to evaluate as well because a good part of it is um, located offshore. So you, you suddenly have the, uh, the possibility of having a tsunami um, and the wave action that could come ashore there would really greatly add to uh, damage on shore and probably loss of life. So, yeah, it could be it could be horrific. Are there I don't mean I don't mean to scare people. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm doing that every time I talk about this subject. <laughs> um, I'm just saying that the potential is there. Yeah, it's an interesting subject to talk to. Also, a little scary. But I mean, are there predictions out there as to when we might see the big one, or is I mean, is it inevitable? Period. It's not an easily predictable period. So. They, the thinking about the San Andreas Fault off to our east is that it should have broke by now. You know, they think it occurs maybe on the order of every 250 to 300 years and we're past that time frame. 
but we only have really a pretty crude understanding of the earth. Um, scientists cannot predict with any accuracy when an earthquake will occur and where it will occur. It's, we just don't know enough, uh, enough about them. They can estimate recurrence times, but they can't predict them with any you know, sense of accuracy. Um, what they can do is uh, take what they learn and apply that to uh, establishing better building zones, um, which is exactly what happened here with the state saying, okay, we're gonna put in two more fault zones in your area. What that means is that if you were, there are roughly 7,000 parcels of land in San Diego in these two fault zones. And if you're a developer or a homeowner and you wanna build something significant, you're gonna to have to probably determine whether the spot that you want to build on is on the site of an active fault or very close to one. What they're trying to avoid is having people build right on top of an active fault. Because if the fault breaks, Christy, it could rupture the surface and destroy buildings and homes. And that's where the loss of life would really come into play. Now, the good news here is that by having uh, people do these studies, they learn more about the fault in general and about specific areas. Um, and over the years, it's caused them uh, to move buildings from one projected spot to another. There's a big project called Seaport Village that they wanna do re redevelopment on. There's a lot of planning going on right now. These new laws will go into effect this summer. So by the time they get anywhere on Seaport Village, they will come under these laws. Um, there's a big complex here in town known as Pinnacle in the Park, residential high rises. Um, the location of those buildings was influenced about, by their nearness to, to a fault. Um, so the steps they took are meant to make that, um, that complex um, safer. Um, the same goes with Petco Park. They did a lot of earthquake analysis when they were deciding precisely where to build that. So this is not meant to bring building to an end in San Diego. We've had acts like this on the books for a very long time, but we've had enormous uh, you know, expansion, as you know, in the city of San, San Diego. It just meant to say that if you're gonna build in areas where we think the fault is active, you better check it out. And if it is, you need to move off the fault a little bit in order for your project to go ahead. Your story says, you know, 7,000 parcels could be affected. La Jolla, Old Town, Downtown, you, you mentioned Seaport Village and some others. I mean, that seems like a lot. Like, is this expected to stunt growth at all? It doesn't appear like it's going to. Um, and the state and the city both emphasize in conversations with me that they don't want to slow down growth. This, our city is growing. Um, but that goes back to what I said earlier. Um, since the year 2000, there have been 60 buildings that are at least eight feet, excuse me, eight stories in height that have been built here in the, built in the city. And there are seven more that are under construction as we speak. San Diego is growing. Um, they, can, they plan to continue to grow. So the purpose of this new legislation or this new law isn't me meant to stop growth. It's meant to make sure that the new buildings go on land that's not sitting on top of an active fault. And in a lot of cases, they can mitigate that. They can put it on a piece of land that's just a short distance away and be comparatively safe. Yeah, how short? Because when I'm thinking of Seaport Village, it just seems hard. I mean, where do you move it? You know, what do you do to the existing plans to renovate? Is it possible? In some cases, you, uh, according to geologists, you would only have to move a building about 50 feet. Now, Seaport Village, uh, you're right, is on a narrow swath of land. So there may be greater impacts there than we know. Um, but generally speaking, geologists feel that in most cases, if something was literally right on top of a place where it was going to break at the surface, 
you could take it off of the fault because the fault is very big and not every section of the fault is active. So the idea is that there would still be room to shove something a little bit off the fault or, or at least off the active part of the fault and still build. And can you talk just a little more about the rules? Um, you know, so what you said, 50 feet away from the fault, does this restrict all kinds of buildings? It's primarily aimed at residential buildings, commercial buildings, and public buildings. So think about the condos that people like you and I live in. Think of the commercial buildings that hold shopping malls and public buildings like city halls. It's primar primarily aimed in the end at buildings that have lots of people living or working in them. The laws are not meant to do things like if you own a home in, say, South Park, um, they're not trying to um, uh, make it so that you can't put up a retaining wall or build a swimming pool. This tends to go towards a focus on larger structures. Um, you know, think of what's going on down in um, Ote um, Ranch, you know, the, it's the enormous construction down there. Think of those kind of projects. Um, I mean, there are still lots of places around our city where large apartment and condo complexes are being built. That's primarily what they're looking on. Parcels of land that are being proposed for development um, where there might be an active earthquake. And finally, how can, you know, those of us who are not developers uh, use this information? You know, it's like, is there something we should keep in mind when we're choosing property? Is there a way to find out how close we are to a fault? I mean, what's the takeaway for general people here? You can go online and find out where you are in relation to a fault based on what is known today. But I would tell you two other things. It is impossible to build anything anywhere in Southern California that is not somewhat close to an earthquake fault because we have so many of them. We live, you know, near the uh, San Andreas, which was on, you know, was part of the dividing line between two averse major seven tectonic plates. So think of taking a cue ball and tapping it against a window and cracking the window and you see all, all, all those lines of cracks. Well, that's what uh, Southern California is like. It's a bunch of cracks or faults. Um, so you can't get away from them. But, you know, there, and the other thing is that uh, some faults are not yet known to exist. Go back to the Northridge earthquake, which, which was a horrible, horrible earthquake. Um, that wasn't known to exist when it broke. It's a so-called blind thrust. That means it kind of pushes up and over as opposed to what we have here, which is strike-slip, where one part of the fault moves horizontally, horizontally in relation to the other. Blind thrust faults are harder to see generally, so scientists didn't know it was there. We could have blind thrust faults here, but that does not mean we should live in fear. What it means is that we should be thoughtful. All of these earthquake drills uh, that you hear about, those are real things and you should do them. Um, you should know that um, if you begin to feel earthquake energy that you drop, and cover your head and hold on. And if you have family members that your phone is already tied into those people automatically, so you could say in the aftermath, I'm here, you're there, you can do a safety check. So between the drop, cover, and hold on, and having earthquake supplies, for example, I have a, a earthquake supplies in the trunk of my car, and I have them here in my home. That's not a hard thing to do. You just set a bin aside, you put water in it, canned food, a can opener, matches, flashlights, some money, some of the things that you would need to get by for a couple of weeks and put it in a corner of your home that's safe. You know, really have it in your home and have it in your car. Um, those are the kinds of things that are gonna save your life over time. Most people do not die in an earthquake, but you can die and the aftermath 
of quakes can be catastrophic. So where you're not near water or light, well, create an earthquake kit. So you have water and light. Thank you for the tips and for the reassurance. Thanks, Gary. Welcome. Now let's turn to opinion. It's been a year since the coronavirus pandemic hit California, so we've asked locals to reflect on what that has meant to them. Laura Castaneda is our community opinion editor and is editing essays from writers that will publish March 11th. Laura, it's hard to believe, but we have been living in this pandemic for almost a year now, and you're working on um, a very powerful series to, to hear from community members about the impact, you know, throughout throughout the San Diego region. What do you have in store? You know, Christy, this, um, you're right, it is hard to believe that it's been a year and I actually, it, it hit me in many, many ways because it's also like the year anniversary that I came on board at the Union Tribune. So it's been um, just so, you know, so emotional in so many ways. And one of the things, you know, we started talking about what impact has all of this made? And there's so many different areas. So we're gonna start doing some special coverage um, starting on March 7th on a Sunday, and then we'll take a break from COVID coverage and then resume on the 14th, on Sunday the 14th, that whole entire following week, because those dates um, surrounding that time is really like when the shutdown started, people were sent home from work. So we're gonna um, focus on probably at least two days uh, talking, letting, hearing from families that have had experienced losses of loved ones. And that is just such a hard thing to hear. There's been just way too many stories. I mean, you know, we hit the 500, we're past the 500,000 mark now of lives lost. And um, I don't want to get overly emotional here talking about it, but I'm still very wounded and raw myself because my emotions are just all over the place with this. I lost two family members back to back, um, nine days apart in Illinois, and also a really good friend last summer. And my dad also had coronavirus, but, um, you know, by the grace of God, he recovered. So this is like now personal to me too. So talking to a lot of these family members and just hearing the stories, um, you know, they want to honor their loved ones too. And it's, it's a real fine line like you want to tell about the loss and the grief but also you want to have enough room in there to tell the world and the community who this person was and why they were so loved so we're going to be doing that and, and it's really hard you know there's a lot of uh, families that were affected here in San Diego um, a lot of Latino families a lot of black families a lot of Asian families and and just families in general you know period all age they lost people of all ages and faiths and yeah, it's really, really hard. And um, we're also gonna be talking to some experts, um, some doctors and um, hospital executives and what all their, you know, their people had to deal with and how it's affected them. And also some mental health um, advocates and mental health experts about how people have been coping, you know, just the whole work thing, people going, uh, being sent home from work um, and some economists to talk about the business angle and like, where do we go from here? How do, how is this community gonna recover? And um, also we're looking to talk 
chuck in and talk to some senior citizens, have some senior citizens write some essays about the isolation and everything that they've gone through because they've been hit so hard too. First, I just want to say I'm sorry for your your losses. Thank you. It's been really hard. Just hearing you go down that list, you know, everybody has been affected by this. It's upended our lives in so many ways. You know, when, just when we were sitting in the meeting trying to come up with the list of all the ways that, that life has changed. But one of your ideas that I loved was like, how do people grieve culturally, you know, and how does that look different depending on who you are? What did you learn when you, when you asked for those essays? So it really started with a conversation with my children about like cultural traditions and what's appropriate. You know, I'm Mexican, I'm Catholic. So we have different traditions that we follow. And, and I started um, reaching out to other people, other uh, communities and, and just people to, to try to teach us about what traditions they follow. So we're gonna be hearing from a Filipino woman and a rabbi and a Catholic priest, a Mexican uh, bishop rather, excuse me, um, to just hear about different cultures and traditions and in the African-American community as well. What are some of the other packages that stand out to you? Well, you know, a lot of them are still coming in, but I will tell you this, you know, some of some of the writers and experts, I mean, they're so busy, they're so overwhelmed right now because we are not done with this pandemic. I mean, it's not over. And there's no question in my mind as these essays are coming, people want to write, people want to inform, people want to uh, let people know how their colleagues and coworkers and um, people who have to face all of you, you know, everything that we've gone through, um, what they're going through. So people are willing to write and share their stories. They're all just kind of starting to come in now. So I haven't read a lot of them, but just the conversations that I had on the phone, trying to set some of the story, the essays up, um, they're going to be very impactful and, and powerful. I can tell you that. I can't wait to read them. Have there been any silver linings? Did anybody write in about anything that, you know, surprised them or maybe turned into a positive somehow? Well, there was one that I did not look for that just, you know, we get a lot of unsolicited pieces that just come in. And again, you know, right now my emotions are so raw, but about just like four days after my, my aunt passed away, my Thea, um, I know the situation that happened with her, you know, her daughter, she only had one daughter, my cousin, and she was there in the room alone with her mother, you know, saying goodbye to her, knowing that her mother was going to pass. And um, I could envision everything in my head, you know, I wasn't there, I couldn't be there. And then this medical student sends this unsolicited piece that we are going to be publishing. And it, he could have literally been describing my aunt's situation, except there were more children involved. And he was just, he, he titled it The Good Death. And it was more focusing on how much, uh, how this woman was loved and how her family was, you know, even despite all the rules and regulations in the hospitals, just imagine what all these doctors and EMTs and nurses have to see over and over again, right, in the past year. But his he tried to find a way to make it uplifting that yes, there had to be a, you know, there was a death involved, but it touched his soul and he wrote it. And so I, we are going to publish it and it, it really touched me. So I know it will touch other people. Are you still looking for people to contribute? 
You know what, right now we, we are looking for a couple more seniors and um, people that have experienced loss if they would like to contribute, you know, especially, um, well, everybody's special, every life is special. And, and that was one thing when um, they were, you know, when I know the statistics get, I don't wanna say they get in the way, but the statistics are always online. We see numbers, but behind those numbers, there is a life that was lost no matter what their age, because my relatives were older and there's longevity in my family. And I, some, I, you know, I've heard several people say to me, oh, well, you know, at least they lived that long. You had them that long, but coronavirus came in and just stole lives away from us. And they, you know, I don't care what their age was. Every single life that was lost is, means so much to the people that love them. So we should we should tell those stories. We should let those essays be read. Is there anything else you wanna add either about your personal experience or about the, the coverage we have coming out soon? You know, this is not about us as journalists. We're doing our jobs, right? But um, you, everybody, like you said earlier, everybody's been affected from the mailman to the, you know, the essential workers to the farm workers. I mean, and I just think we all have to remember that going forward, like everyone's taken a toll. People that have are trying to um, work from home and school their children at home and people that are getting the vaccine and are afraid to get the vaccine and people that have had the vaccine and their arms sore. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. So this little chapter of coronavirus, us looking over back at the past year to see where things are and where where they've been and you know thinking about all the birthday parties and all the anniversary celebrations and holidays everything that we've all missed like it's it's taken a global toll on everybody no matter who you are and what you do so i think if we just all keep keep that mantra going of we're all in this together um you know hopefully in a year from now, the year, looking the year back will be much different than it is going to be this, this anniversary. This is a, a horrible anniversary that we're, that we're looking back on. I just want to say condolences again, and um, thank you for your work, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. You can find these stories online at sandiegouniontribune.com. I'm Christy Totten. We'll be back tomorrow.